This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Alison Lecce. As we near next month's UN Biodiversity Conference, COP15, we're taking a look at an integral and key part of the climate change debate. And that is biodiversity and conservation. With a population of nearly 8 billion, the planet is running out of room to hold everyone. And one of the first things at risk are our ecosystems. In episode 38, we find out that biodiversity isn't just about the protection and conservation of species and nature. From climate finance to gender, nutrition to youth, the promotion of biodiversity has a ripple effect on all aspects of life. With COP27 behind us, in this episode, we take a closer look at the next conference, COP15. We talk to EFAD specialists about their expectations for the conference, and we learn about the landmark agreement that brought biodiversity to the table. We also hear from three EFAD projects that put conservation at the forefront of their missions, and even earn some awards in the process. We'll shift gears later on to take a sneak peek at the theme of our next episode, the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development. And we learn about a few of IFAD's newer initiatives, like submersible roads in Bangladesh and climate risk insurance. Later, we travel with Chef Carlo Krako to Sri Lanka to learn about jackfruit and biodiversity conservation. And then we head up to the UK to catch up with an old friend of mine, Max Cotton. Going it alone on his own small holding, he's eating just what he grows. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Allison Lecce here in Rome with Brian Thompson. The 15th meeting of the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity takes place in Montreal in December. IFAD will be there to make sure that food systems and agriculture gets the attention it deserves. I asked IFAD's Nadine Azu about why the CBD COP15 is so important for food systems and agriculture. Of course, uh, CBD conferences of parties are important for biodiversity as a whole, but this COP is particularly important. Uh, It's because it's expected that the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, GBF for short, will be adopted. So, um, in fact, perhaps the question should be, why is the GBF important for agriculture and food security? So just to give a little bit of context, food insecurity and malnutrition are continuing to worsen globally. Uh, There are nearly 2.3 billion people moderately or severely food insecure. So from an EFAD perspective, this means working with disadvantaged segments of rural populations to improve their food systems. And this includes through sustainable use, enhancement, and restoration of biodiversity and ecosystem services. So to achieve its four goals, the 20 Global Biodiversity Framework targets address a broad scope of issues which are interlinked from environmental to economic to social, and all of these have implications for food systems and agriculture. 
And while we still don't know the final negotiated text of the GBF, we do know that many of the targets are linked to agri-food systems, including fisheries and forestry. So just to give some examples, targets 9 and 10 are on sustainable agriculture, fisheries, aquaculture, and forestry. Target 7 is on reducing pollution from agriculture and other sources, and target 2 is on ecosystem restoration. There are also other targets that are linked to IFAD's work in supporting smallholder producers and disadvantaged groups, including indigenous people and women. And lastly, this CBD COP is important for agriculture and food security because it, act, it comes on the tail of two other COPs of the UNCCD and UNFCCC. And um, both of these forums have linkages to agriculture and food security issues in the context of their mandates, but both of them are cognizant of the interlinkages between these and biodiversity. What will IFAD be focusing on in particular at this COP? So, in fact, IFAD has much to offer, not only at COP15, but also to support countries in the implementation of the GBF. So as observers, we don't participate in negotiations, but we do have an opportunity to reaffirm our work with, for example, nature-positive food systems and adaptation. So at COP15, we would like to participate more actively and engage more visibly with partners and stakeholders in the biodiversity arena to show how our work contributes to the global biodiversity agenda and the GBF. So we occupy a unique space where we can converge biodiversity, climate change, and desertification agendas as they apply to small-scale agricultural producers in poor rural areas. For example, IFAD is now a partner in the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, and we're implementing our first biodiversity strategy. We've also recently developed a biodiversity core indicator and uh, nature-based solutions finance tracking methodology. So we want to convey the message that we recognize that biodiversity is the basis of agriculture and other food producing systems, and that we are committed to supporting governments and working with other key actors to prioritize biodiversity as a vital element of these systems. Summarizing that, um, COP15 is an opportunity for us to showcase how we provide support to countries to implement the GBF goals and targets. What would be the best, in your opinion, realistic outcome we can expect for COP15 in terms of, of real change? Well, before the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, there was the 2011-2020 Strategic Plan for Biodiversity and its 20 IHE Biodiversity Targets. But in fact, the global community failed to meet these and none of them were fully achieved and only six were partially achieved. Negotiating the text of the GBF has been a long and pretty arduous task for countries, mainly because of the delays related to COVID-19. So COP15 will be preceded by a fifth open-ended working group. So what I want to say is that it, it has been a long process, but what we do want to see from the negotiated text and the adopted text at COP15 is a result for agriculture, for small-scale farmers in developing countries, for food security, for the planet, and for biodiversity. What we want to see is that agriculture and food systems are taken seriously at the CBD. We know that agriculture and land use are major drivers of biodiversity loss, but we also know that they can be part of the solution. 
was Nadine Azu talking about the Convention on Biological Diversity and COP15 coming up in December. Up next, news from Haiti, Turkey, and Eswatini. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson, and with me is Alison Lecce. Agriculture only thrives when biodiversity is intact. And yet, it's also one of the leading sources of biodiversity loss. Land degradation, deforestation and overgrazing are just some of the ways in which agriculture erodes the very systems it depends on. I took a look back at some of the projects that put biodiversity and conservation at the forefront of their work. First, I spoke with EFAD's Mina Grossman about the northern region of Haiti, where fishing is a common source of income. So in the case of fishery, um, which is really a very important sector in this protected area and for the local populations, the types of nets that are currently being used are leading to too many juvenile fish being caught. And so this is really hindering their capacity to reproduce and resulting in a depletion of the fish stocks. The agriculture sector in Haiti employs nearly half of the country's workforce, but issues like overfishing are depleting the once profitable sector. The Inclusive Blue Economy Project began in 2021 and runs until 2027. It aims to transform the way coastal populations manage natural and marine resources. So the project consists of two main parts. Um, the first component is really looking at the governance and sustainable management of natural resources. So this component will help to ensure um, sustainable and inclusive management of the land, um, the coastal and marine resources of the protected area. Um, then we have a second component, which is the conservation and sustainable use of ecosystems to improve and diversify the livelihoods of the local communities. So this will include um, the development of alternative livelihoods that respect the environment and biodiversity. Um, we'll also be supporting local conservation and restoration activities, such as the restoration of mangrove forests, um, coral reefs and watersheds. Part of the project is growing and restoring gardens and forests. It uses indigenous crops that are resistant to local conditions. Woodlots are created to reduce deforestation. And mangroves are also being restored to help prevent erosion and provide safe breeding grounds for fish. As for the fisheries, well, the project came up with a simple solution for overfishing. So through the promotion of nets with larger holes, juveniles will not be caught, enabling the regeneration of these fish populations. And we'll be working very closely with fishermen and women to ensure that they are compensated for this transition to sustainable practices and also um, compensated for the temporarily reduced catch that they will um, encounter. On the other side of the Atlantic, two more countries face similar problems. Eswatini is a small, landlocked country in southern Africa. It struggles with unpredictable weather patterns and deforestation from farming and improper land use. The country was in desperate need of forest and wetland rehabilitation and proper surveillance and management of these areas. Now, Turkey is a bit of a different story. For years, the upland areas were subjected to deforestation and overgrazing, but that wasn't their only problem. Listen as IFAD country director in Turkey, Bernard Hein, told us what happened next. 
So people started farming on steep slopes without effective soil conservation practices. And this also resulted in land degradation, in erosion, sedimentations. The quality of the water was decreasing and the runoff was increasing, resulting in flooding and landslide, which affected not only the forest villages, but even a much bigger population in the downstream. And clearly, the villages were losing their ability to continue deriving in a sustainable manner their livelihoods from natural resources. These crucial issues were soon addressed by two EFAD-funded projects, the Morat River Rehabilitation Project in Turkey and the Smallholder Market-Led Project in Eswatini. These projects took a dynamic approach to addressing the issue. They let local communities take the reins. So basically, we empowered the population, the communities, to do their own diagnosis, to develop accurate and dynamic picture of the situation and to prepare village plans for the sustainable management of their natural resources and also for the improvement of their livelihood. Actions included, for example, soil protections, afforestation activities, rehabilitation of pastures lands, orchard and greenhouse investment, uh, house eating stoves. In Eswatini, community work is already the norm. Climate issues were discussed together in community development meetings and there are wetland resource management committees. But country director Yana Kaitanarata said cash flow further incentivized communities to take action. Climate work has been very much uh, related to the income generation. So while in many other countries, uh, uh, sometimes climate work has been given like a second priority, That's, that has not been the case in Eswatini because people are seeing uh, direct also cash flows coming from the climate work. There is an increased awareness of climate issues in Eswatini. Community work has always been strong, but it has become even stronger. Uh, community practices has been improved. And really, like I say, that all this has been done uh, uh, together with the um, goal of increased incomes. So far, the project in Eswatini is having smashing results. Uh, we have um, 58 hectares conservation area, which is currently a home a variety of indigenous plants and animal species. And this has uh, the maintenance of that area has been particularly popular with youth. We have a restoration and a social fencing of wetlands. We have six wet wetlands areas that are completely in, in a good shape and fenced. And uh, these are, for example, that um, women are using these areas for the wetland grass, which are sold for good prices. It has the accolades to show for it. It won the Biodiversity Prize at the Tenvelo Climate Awards not once, but twice, in 2020 and 2021. It wasn't the only one. The Morat River Project also won an award, the IFAD Gender Award in 2019. The results over in Turkey are pretty impressive, too. The 95,000 target, the outreach today is 140,000 beneficiaries, 4,000 hectares of land, were afforestated and 20,000 hectares of land benefited from erosion control activities. Soil erosion was being reduced and the hydrology in the macro catchment was being improved. The analysis also confirmed that an achievement of 30% increase in vegetation cover 
The population benefited from investment in orchards, strawberry, vegetable greenhouses, and this was expanded in the three provinces and has diversified the means of living of the people and has generated substantial income to the households. From fisheries and mangroves in Haiti to forests in Eswatini and rivers in Turkey, these projects reveal how biodiversity transcends ecological benefits. It's not just about conservation. It's about nutrition, gender equality, income generation, and more. And this, this is why EFAG continues to put biodiversity at the forefront of its projects. That was Alison Lecce with a look at some of our biodiversity projects. Up next, we hear from two members of the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson. Here with me is Alison Lecce. The Global Donor Platform is a crucial network of leading donors who focus on food security and promoting rural development. The network is made of 40 influential donors from international development agencies, financial institutions, and intergovernmental organizations and foundations. Leaders from these agencies come together to collaborate and advocate for policies and increased funding in agriculture and rural development. We spoke to two members of the platform about the issues that matter most to them. In Rome, we are with Nadine Gobossa, head of the UN Food Systems Coordination Hub, and we also chat with IFAD's Nigeria Country Director, Didi Ekui. Our reporter, Sierra Baradelli, asks, what keeps them up at night? What is keeping me at night, I mean, it's really related to, to my function, is that for three years in a row, the number of hungry people in the world has been rising. We are now having a more than 700 million people who are going hungry every day. And we know that with COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine, I mean, this number could increase by another 19 million this year. What is clear today is that the capacity of the world food system to feed the world is becoming a global challenge. And in my view, it requires global action like climate and COVID-19. But too many people are ignorant of the criticality of the food system issues. They have become accustomed about hearing about hungry people. Hundreds of million people are hungry in Asia, in Africa and Latin America. Nobody loses sleep over this. And I don't think it's acceptable in a world where one-third of the food goes to waste that we get used to people going hungry. And also the fact that hunger is also increasing in Western countries. You see it, walk on the street, you will see people going hungry, uh, homeless people, and OECD is also reporting that hunger is increasing in OECD countries and emerging economies. It has become a global problem. We must tackle it, and that keeps me awake at night. And what about you, Dede? What currently keeps you up at night? Personally, having lived through food insecurity, I'm uh, committed to ensuring that food system leads to access, accessibility, and affordability of food for all. I remember as a child living in a rural area, it was difficult for many children in the school coming from low-income families to have food. At the same time, when I was in urban area myself, I lacked food for some time, and food equity, food access for me is a 
important right. And I'm happy to be here in Nigeria, where IFAD supports the Nigerian government and other stakeholders on implementing the national food system transformation policy that has been enacted here. This uh, food system transformation requires action from all the sectors and from different groups of stakeholders. This means that coordination is key. Here in Nigeria, the government, private sector, civil society, all want to build coordination system that can lead to better synergy, more concerted action, and enhance investment in inclusive and innovative, resilient food system. So this coordination element is something that keeps us up at night, but with the support of the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, we are also learning new ways of uh, promoting active cooperation that leads to meaningful partnership. For my next question, what can key donors do to help countries reshape their national food systems? Sarah, we are in a situation today where the financing of food system transformation must happen in a context where developing countries are operating in a drastically challenged financial landscape. What do I mean is that basically they are in a tighter fiscal space and, and financial conditions and they have to find the means to live up to the commitment to prioritize food system transformation in the national budget. What donors can do to help them doing that by stepping up their development assistance, I think everybody's familiar with ODA, and also their commitment to international financial institutions like IFAD so that they can support their countries in their national response. What organizations like IFAD can do as well is to basically activate rapid disbursement mechanisms, raise access limit, and apply more flexible conditions for these countries because we must recognize the countries in which we are living. But I would like to add a final point is that it's not only about putting more donor money into this country, but ensure the coherence between these uh, development assistance and the policies of these countries. We cannot have development assistance at one level which is not up to meeting the requirements and have, for example, 700 billion of subsidies a year in OECD countries, which depress prices, uh, make it more difficult for local producers in developing countries to compete and does not allow them to make a decent livelihood. So coherence, it goes hand in hand with increased donors' investment. Thanks so much for that response, Nadine. And over to you, Dede. We have to have alignment with what the country has decided as strategy for the food system transformation. We need to work more together, building a common perspective of what are the issues and what are the opportunities. The second element that uh, is important is to help the country as the countries coordinate this food system transformation process. The third element that is uh, important for donor also is to build the capacity and, and support the government in ensuring ensuring that incentive and policy are put in place to mobilize private sector investment in agriculture. Because we know the public funding can go to a certain level, but it cannot satisfy all the needs in terms of financing for the food system transformation to be a reality. The fourth element that I would like to highlight in terms of donor support is that we know that youth are a strong force in Nigeria. We have at least 30% of the population that is between 15 years old and 30. So this is a strong force that we need to mobilize to boost the productivity and also the competitiveness of agriculture in the country. In a nutshell, coordination among donors is very key. Uh, 2030 is just at the corner, so we need to find ways to work better and more together to be able to deliver the you know, superior uh, support to the beneficiary countries. 
how does the current global food crisis make this more challenging for countries to reshape their national food systems? Well, Sierra, with this new crisis, the millions of people are at risk of food insecurity again. The major risk I'm seeing is that governments and donors shift their attention from this food system transformation agenda to emergency assistance and quick fix to protect the most vulnerable. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this emergency assistance is not needed. What I'm saying is that it's not one or the other. If we don't start working also on the structural reasons that lead to this recurrent crisis, we will just be moving from crisis to crisis. So for us, working with the global platform of, of donors for rural development is really an opportunity to bring back these issues to attention uh, in partnership with IFAD, in partnership with the United Nations Coordination Hub to make sure that the donors pay attention to the food system transformation agenda and all the efforts do not go only in addressing this crisis, because otherwise it will be recurrent. Today it's COVID-19, tomorrow it is the Ukraine war. We don't know what next will come, but we need to deal with the structural change to deal with this dual objective, address the short-term crisis and making sure that we deal with the structural challenges that will mean that tomorrow hunger will be a story of the past. And Dede, what does this current global crisis mean for the food sector? In the case of Nigeria, we have the issue of insecurity. We have also the energy crisis. All this is leading to inflation, and this inflation affects the, the food sector in different ways. It's really important to look at this crisis as an opportunity to accelerate the food system transformation. In the short term, it's true that it's leading to some challenge, but it is also fast-forwarding the process of thinking in an innovative way, thinking out of the box. So one of the key elements here is that we need to think more of production of inputs for agriculture in country and especially you know for example for fertilizer encouraging nature-based solution for increasing the yields of our farmer uh, that's one way of looking at it the second uh, element is the value chain is becoming more important to uh, localize the value chain increasing the local content so that these are elements that are response so a crisis, looking at the crisis as, as an immediate shock, but turning it around as a strategic opportunity to write a better narrative for the future. That was Nadine Gabossa at the UN Food Systems Coordination Hub and Didi Ekui from IFAD in Nigeria. If you want to hear more from us, please tune into any of our 38 podcasts and over 350 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. Episode 37 gave us a snapshot of climate change in Africa ahead of the first ever Africa Climate COP. In episode 36, we talked about South Asia and episode 35 found us back in Africa with a look at renewable energy. And in next month's episode, we will be introducing EFAD's new president and will also return to the global donor platform. Up next, we continue our series on Bangladesh with environmental reporter Kasa Alam. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce here with Brian Thompson. Bangladesh is not new to flooding. In fact, it's part of life there. As monsoons sweep the country each year, Bangladesh's vast river network overflows. Newly formed lakes and ponds cover more than a third of Bangladesh and provide bountiful fishing and farmland irrigation. But in the last two decades, heavy and erratic rainfall, rising sea levels and melting glaciers are causing devastating flash floods. These floods affect millions of people, 
The changing climate prolongs the monsoon season. This means lands are submerged for longer and rural villages are cut off, in some cases for months on end. People are forced out of work and it becomes difficult to access even the most basic food and supplies. This is why investments in adaptation are crucial. And it is why IFAD worked with the government of Bangladesh to build more than 700 kilometers of submersible roads. But what exactly are submersible roads? Kasa Alom has the story. When I was growing up, my dad would always say, you don't know how lucky you are. And I've come to find out now in rural Bangladesh. I'm seeing floods and famine, drought and devastation. But what I'm really curious about is learning how the people here manage. When you live with the threat of your house washing away every day, what's life like? Do you let yourself dream, think about a better tomorrow? Or is it all just about surviving today? I am 24 years old. I studied for a master's. Village in Dormopasha Upazila sub-district in the Sunamganj district. I've decided to meet Lalon to help me figure this out. He lives in Sunamganj, northern Bangladesh. It's incredibly isolated here, and it floods for up to eight months of the year. No, nice to see you, Lalon. Thank you very much. Don't you bad. Don't you bad. Um, I'm studying at this moment. I also do agricultural work besides studying. Ten years back from now, the situation was severe. We had to face a huge economic loss from flooding. It was also hard to keep our livestock alive and safe. Our income decreased a lot. Flooding, hails, drought and flesh floods impact our lives severely. Great to different places looking for jobs and stay safe from all of this. Altogether, we have lived in this region with many climatic and environmental adversities. Rose as high as my shoulders, up to my waist. I'm starting to see what my dad was on about, actually. I am more lucky than I ever imagined. Water entered our houses. When I was in school, we could not go there because of this flooding. The school. And often boats sunk. The school and just returned home. I continued going, but it wasn't easy. And now you're a master's student. Oh, master's pass. Oh, congratulations in all this to do that as well. I'm actually in awe of this guy. For years, he literally waded through mud in shoulder-high water to get to school to better himself. And he's not the only one. I get a real sense of how important they take education here when I see the village school. But Yusuf, one of the school teachers, tells me how tough it can get for the kids to get here in the wet season. Children of this region come to school by boat. There are small boats. Often, when the weather is bad, with rain, waves, thunder, it becomes unsafe for the children. Many unexpected incidents occurred this way. It's weird being here now because when I saw pictures of this place, the whole area was flooded. 
because it was the wet season. It was monsoon, it was rain, it was really bad. And that's what they've had to deal with all the time. My good mood doesn't last that long though. We plan to head down the road to the local hospital. The journey though is complicated by bumpy roads that throw me around the back of the C&G and give me my whiplash. I'm glad I didn't eat before the trip. In all seriousness though, the journey is hard and long and this is in the dry season. I wonder what it's like in the height of floods when someone needs to get to the hospital fast. In earlier times, four to five people hand-carried a stretcher to bring a patient. They came here on foot. Once, a senior citizen could not be carried because it was raining heavily in the night. So I went there on foot to provide primary treatment. Without roads, it is impossible to get here to the health centre in 10 minutes. On foot, it takes 30 minutes to one hour to reach the centre from the nearest village. For some people, that extra time could be the difference between life and death. How many have died because they simply couldn't get to the hospital in time? That's something the local government, supported by IFAD, wanted to change though. A couple of years ago, they wanted to do something revolutionary to help connect people here. They wanted to build a flood-resistant road. It's called a submersible road. So what even is a submersible road? Well, basically what it means is that when it's the monsoon season, this road can still be used. They might be knee deep, but people can still use it. And it's also changed everyone's communities because it's meant that they can come really close. Like some of these people here as well. Assalamu alaikum. Um, where have you come from? Muktapur. Where is Muktapur? Over there. Khutudur. That means basically it's, it's quite far away. Before this road, So what they're saying is that it's taken them 40 minutes to get from that village to here right now with this road because obviously they've got to go all the way around. But that's something they're quite happy about because before the road was here, it would have taken them all day just to get here. So, Age Salaite, Ugun? No, no, no. Kita Salaite. Age Okay, Hene? Or Orodo. Right, okay. So basically, they're saying they couldn't even drive these before because it just wasn't possible. So they had little bikes and smaller things like that. On Ohon, Megoshomoi, Ebo Faroni. I mean, I take a lot for granted living in the UK. You know, that I'm warm, that I'm fed, we have free schools and free healthcare. But traveling here has made me grateful for something I really didn't expect, roads. I never appreciated just how important they are to every facet of life. From getting to places hassle-free, to healthcare, from improving businesses, to connecting communities. Shall I tell you, honestly, in my head, it's just a road, you know? <laughs> it's just a road. In the UK, there's a million of them like this, but there aren't in this place, in the Hoa region, and that's what matters. Um, it really hit me when we stopped that uh, taxi and they said, they live just down there, but it would take them all day to get here before, just because the roads were that bad. For Lalon and the other farmers, the road means more money and less hassle even in the wet season. 
We make more money now because the unit cost for carrying is half of what it was. Now we spend 300 taka for a harvest for carrying paddy to our home from Hawar fields, whereas earlier it was a minimum of 500-600 taka because the road was bad. This road has saved hard labors, money and time. I still can't get over how something as simple as a road helps the whole community grow, but that is the case. More trade for farmers means more need for skilled workers, like Rubel, who's now a trained mechanic. Rubel, I love this shop. I love this place. Congratulations, thank you for having it. How long have you had this shop? When did you start getting trained? In 2018, I took the training, which lasted 45 days. Before doing this job, I was working in a shop at the market. While in that job, one government official suggested I take a training course. I asked what kind of training, and he said motorcycle repairing. Then I said, all right. I learned all types of motorcycle repairing and learned about the engine and the body. Many come to me to repair their motorcycles. I make a good profit from my workshop. Before, I earned a small wage and I had to live in hardship. Now, I can bear my expenses and also support my family. I'm also saving the equivalent of $50 every month. He took a huge gamble by borrowing money to pay for his training, equipment and shop. If things went wrong, it would have been big trouble for him. But thankfully, his ambition has paid off. He makes enough now to support his parents, brothers and help his sisters get married. He can even employ others. I pay the rent of this workshop and pay for my employees. I also reinvest the profit from the workshop and equipment. But it's more than just the cash that matters here. Rubel is happy. You can see in his face that he has pride in his work and enjoys his life. I love doing it because I enjoy the independence of entrepreneurship. I can work in my own time. While working under another owner, I had to do many tasks unrelated to my skills, like cleaning the shop, helping in the owner's household. I can now spend the extra time improving my shop, doing accounting. I enjoy working this way. How much has this project, this training, changed your life? This has changed my life entirely. I never imagined I would be able to do this work so skillfully and that I'd be able to start my own shop. I never imagined this could happen. I used to do agricultural work once with my father. I used to help with household chores and worked occasionally as a repairman. I thought that was my life. I want to expand my business to import equipment and motorcycle parts from India and sell them at an affordable price. I could make some handsome profit. At the start of this doc, I asked if people here, living somewhere that floods for eight months of the year, can even dare to dream of a better tomorrow, or if they think just about today. Rubel has shown me, though, that people here are ambitious. They want to be successful. They're not dreamers at all. They're doers, and they deserve our respect. Even though people here live under the threat of a changing climate every day, practical solutions like flood-resistant roads are giving the next generation hope. Students are coming into school spontaneously. Ever since the roads were built, low-income households are sending their kids to school. Now we have nearly 1,000 students. Before leaving this beautiful place, I wanted to go back to the hospital one more time. It was bothering me that people couldn't get the medical care they needed because of bad roads. 
things got better now. We do not need to walk long distances anymore. If the patient is critical, I go by motorbike or in a rickshaw car. The road made our commuting very easy. Many lives can be saved this way. Earlier, many were denied health care. Now, if a patient's condition is really critical, I can refer them to the district hospital for better treatment. Thanks to the roads, those patients can easily get to hospital. Before, the journey took six hours. Now, it only takes two hours to get there. Six hours before, two hours now. Between life and death. Yes, and the quality of life has improved too. We can save time and we can save lives. I never knew how much of a difference a single road would make, but it does. It's not just about a road, is it? It's, um, it's also about the access it gives to people, to places like the schools, for example, for food. All these things that you don't really think about, but, but yeah, that's how it made me feel. People in the UK, myself included, we're not happy with what we've got and we've got a lot. And that's what I realised being here. We have a lot that we take for granted. Next time, how prepared are the people of Bangladesh when cyclones are about to hit? This is Bangladesh, the climate frontline. That was environmental journalist Kasa Alam reporting from Bangladesh. If you want to know more about his reports on IFAD projects and his work in general, you can check his YouTube channel, Kasa Vision. That's Q-A-S-A Vision. Up next, we follow one of our recipes for change chefs to Sri Lanka. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson, and with me in the studio is Alison Lecce. We return now to a familiar face from the Recipes for a Change campaign, Chef Carlo Craco. Carlo is known for his innovative take on traditional recipes, and this time, he takes us to Sri Lanka to learn about the jackfruit. In the face of climate change, jackfruit is a versatile substitute for staple ingredients like rice. In addition to being a source of vitamins and protein, one jackfruit can feed a family for several days. Listen as Carlo Craco talks to the locals about this fruit. One of Italy's most famous chefs, Carlo Craco, has travelled to Sri Lanka to learn about a common local fruit and how it is helping rural communities adapt to climate change. In jackfruit. Jackfruit is an incredible fruit. It grows naturally and doesn't need anything. You can make various recipes and it has many uses. It is a clever way to substitute some ingredients that are hard to get with something native that's here and readily available. You don't know what to eat? Pick a jackfruit, cut it, peel it, and cook it. Widely grown all over the country, the jackfruit is one of the largest fruits in the world. It is incredibly nutritious and versatile. Cut away the central part, which is a bit tougher, and the skin. One jackfruit can feed an entire family for several days and provides a reliable source of proteins, vitamins, and carbohydrates. Most importantly, it is drought-resilient. And as farmers struggled to grow enough food due to the unpredictable weather patterns and extended droughts, jackfruit can replace many staples like rice that require a lot of water to grow. The chef, renowned for his innovative take on traditional recipes, is visiting a local farming family in Sri Lanka's central province and joins Rajama in the kitchen 
to learn how to make one of Sri Lanka's most popular dishes, Polo's curry, featuring jackfruit as its main ingredient. My family really likes to eat polo's curry. It is so delicious. A single jackfruit curry is a whole meal in itself. That's why I love jackfruit and polo's curry. We've put in the onion, garlic, the aromatics. Now she's adding milk made by squeezing fresh coconut. Add the jackfruit and leave it to cook for five to six hours. Rajama says that jackfruit can provide a hearty meal when other foods are lacking. The family have seen how the climate has affected their livestock and their livelihood. Without reliable rainfall, they struggle to grow enough fodder and the animals produce less milk. Before, we had a lot of grass to feed the cows, but now it often does not rain enough and we don't have enough grass to feed the cows. Life is much more difficult now. Through a government project funded by the UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development, or EFED, farmers are learning about the benefits of jackfruit, not only for their nutritious value, but also as a source of income. Rajama and other farmers in the area can sell their surplus fruit to a nearby food processing factory. Funded with the EFAD loan, this factory makes dried snacks for a growing local and international market. The livelihood of farmers in Sri Lanka is very much influenced by the season and the health of the ecosystem. So the role of EFAD in collaboration with the government of Sri Lanka is to support projects in strengthening their resilience to climate change. To build their resilience, farmers across the country are trained in climate-smart farming practices and provided with efficient irrigation systems and netting to protect their crops from an increase in insects. Rajama's family were taught to make silage from grass to feed the animals and how to use manure and other waste on their farm to make organic compost. As well as improving soil fertility and increasing their yields, they can also earn additional income by sending their compost to neighboring farms. A family that works the land tries to exploit it in a positive way in order to always reap the benefits. This is important for climate balance. There needs to be an exchange between what I take and what I give back. A small-scale farm works exactly like this, preserving the territory. By protecting their resources with climate-smart practices, farmers in Sri Lanka are striving to stay one step ahead of climate change, but might need to rely more upon the hardy and versatile jackfruit. Even with a jackfruit, you can make a great dish. Thanks to Sam Cole for that report. You can find the Polo's curry recipe on our website at www.efad.org slash recipes for change. Up next, we learn about one of IFAD's newest initiatives, the Insured Program. You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Allison Lecce here with Brian Thompson. Agriculture and climate risk insurance can help break the vicious cycle of shocks and poverty traps that prevent rural people from building their businesses and improving their lives. The unique advantage of insurance is that it can transfer otherwise unmanageable risks away from farmers. When used as part of a holistic approach to agricultural risk management, insurance can set in motion a virtuous circle that enables farming families 
to produce, earn and invest more, building their assets and resilience. EFAD is working to promote responsible use of insurance through the INSURED program, which stands for Insurance for Rural Resilience and Economic Development. It is a $6 million program funded by the Swedish International Development Corporation Agency and implemented by the multi-donor platform for agricultural risk management. Insured aims to build the resilience of poor rural households, increase their capacity to manage risk and strengthen their livelihoods. It offers technical assistance to the IFAD finance portfolio with the aim of protecting incomes and promoting investment in smallholder agriculture. I spoke with Insured's Emily Coleman and she told us more about the work they do. Uh, the programme I work on called Insured has mainly been focusing on agricultural insurance, which is a, which is a type of a subset of climate risk insurance. Agricultural insurance is generally used to protect uh, crops and livestock, um, but also it can be used for forestry and aquaculture and it can be used to protect against different reasons and they might be uh, directly or indirectly related to climate. Now in agricultural insurance there are two main types so it can be indemnity based which sometimes we call uh, traditional insurance which is where compensation is um, determined based on uh, measured loss or damage so an insurer has to go to a farm um, and check that uh, a loss has occurred and then process a claim, which can also take some time, right? And it's difficult to reach uh, all these smallholder farms as well. Whereas um, index-based insurance is another type of insurance and it is uh, basically based on data, it's based on historical data and contemporary data um, to correlate when um, a crop loss might occur due to with maize due to drought, for example. Um, and generally for index insurance, all farmers within a homogenous area, so with the same weather patterns, growing similar crops, um, purchase the same policy or are covered under the same policy for the same price, and they receive the same payouts when uh, what we say the index is triggered. So when maybe rainfall falls below a certain point that we know would cause crop damage or loss. Why are some small-scale farmers reluctant to take on insurance for their crops? If we think about why small-scale farmers might not want to buy insurance, um, one is also the lack of experience or familiarity. The second is what I mentioned, I look for trust, so it's the same. And then also another thing that I mentioned, but it's even more important in the case of small-scale farmers, is affordability. Now, the other reasons I mentioned about why I have insurance, it's exactly the same in the countries that we work. In some countries, it's compulsory to have insurance. And in some countries, it might be compulsory um, packaged together with credit. So it might help a farmer actually access um, other credit to, to have um, by having insurance. And then in some cases, of course, it can be voluntary, but in the cases where it's voluntary, it's even more important to have a really attractive insurance offer um, that a farmer can understand that's uh, bringing them um, benefits as well. Why are some businesses unwilling to insure small scale farmers? 
basically uh, very similar to why it's difficult to get any services, especially financial services, so uh, including credit, savings, etc., cetera, um, delivered to small-scale farmers. So one big reason is the lack of understanding of what they need and what they want and what struggles they're facing, what uh, their farming practices are, all these types of things. Um, and a better understanding can help to design better products and also to improve ways in which those products are offered. Um, then a second reason is something that I think we struggle with in, with many different services delivered in EFAD finance projects, which is um, being able to reach the last mile. So small-scale farmers in many countries um, are widely dispersed. Um, they've got smaller farms, which is uh, relevant for insurance. They're not always aggregated into groups or connected with, um, with other other um, services or channels like uh, financial institutions. So they're um, difficult to reach. Insure comes to an end, the first part anyway, in 2023. What have been your standout successes and where does more work need to be done? I would say one of our standout successes has been um, the work that we've been supporting in Kenya together with the EFAD and EU finance programme, KSEP Crow, and our technical partner, Pula. Um, so there we're working together with partners to scale up um, a product called Airy Yield Index Insurance, but it's linked to an e-voucher scheme. So the insurance is not on its own. So the way it works is that farmers are enrolled into the scheme when they purchase inputs using their e-vouchers, and in case of a, a drought, um, the farmers receive compensation directly into their e-wallet. So it's nice and easy for them to receive the compensation. And then this money can be used to buy um, quality inputs for the next planting season. And there, through integrating within these existing services, um, we've managed to reach about 40,000 farmers since the beginning, um, of which over 50% are women. And also there was a, a payout to over 11,000 farmers, um, which also helped to show, um, to demonstrate to farmers how insurance can work. Um, but then of course, um, with this work comes learning about the challenges. I think that you know some of the main challenges that remain are around technical aspects of product design to make sure that products compensate when they should, that they cover relevant risks, and also operational aspects like educating farmers, building capacity of everyone involved, insurers, government, delivery channels, um, to implement and manage the insurance schemes and making sure it's quick and easy to buy or deliver products and that they're made as affordable as possible. And then finally, that it's equally quick and easy to be paid the compensation. Thanks to Emily Coleman. And you can find out more about Insured at ifad.org forward slash insured.
and stick around to hear from two farmers who are benefiting from this programme. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in the studio with Alison Lecce. Now that we know what the insured program is, we spoke to two farmers who benefit from climate risk insurance. Jacob Kimilu and Bibian Chengo are two farmers from the Makueni County of Kenya. As much as 80% of the land in Kenya is arid and semi-arid. Farmers struggle to grow food and with climate change becoming increasingly worse, the impact is especially dire to farmers' food security. Listen as Jacob and Bibian tell us about the challenges they face in their farming and how climate risk insurance is giving them hope. My name is Jacob Kimilu and my wife is Bibiana Mwendechengo, who is the direct beneficiary of the program. My farm has got three acres. We plant mostly cereals crops like uh, maize, peas, sorghum, green grams, and uh, other crops. Jacob, tell us what are some of the threats you face as a farmer? Uh, some of the threat threats which we face in our farming mostly are pests and diseases. Pests are like uh, weaves. We also have army worms and we also have uh, weaver bats which normally have, uh, eat the sorghum. Those are some of the pests which we normally face. We also have diseases like the rats we also have the loose smarts and also the hair goats on the sorghum as the diseases. Another thread which we also face like uh, we lack quality seeds uh, during the planting season because quality seeds normally assist us in uh, quick growth and a good yield. After harvesting, we lack storage bags because when we store badly, then the weaves the weave normally attack, then now they destroy the harvested sorghum. We also lack uh, uh, fertilizers in time to do some soil topping. Another problem which also affects us is the weather changes. Weather changes uh, leads to little rains or even no rains leading to our crops to dry. Your husband Jacob has listed quite a number of threats. How do you see insurance help you reduce some of these threats? I'm Bibiana Mwendechengo. In regards on how insurance help us to reduce threats, insurance has helped farmers reduce these threats on recovering some of the losses we have incurred during the planting process, disease and control process that we have uh, incurred. In the past, did you have any reason to call on insurance to cover your losses? Yes, but I never knew if there were insurances which existed to cover or help uh, in uh, our problems in the farming. So, Bibian, were you worried about taking insurance in the past? Yes, I, I was worried because I thought we were to pay back the insurance that we are insured with after we are given. To conclude, Jacob, what would you recommend to other farmers in regards to insurance if they were under similar doubts? Okay, I recommend my farmers, my farmers in Makueni County, in Kibwesab County, also to join this program. They should not fear because of the unknown. I do understand majority of them, when the program came, they did not understand it well. Save never took the initiative of registering. And there are also some who registered, but they never uh, picked the card. 
and also paid the little amount of money which we were supposed to do some subsidy. But I recommend them to join the program because the program is good. It brings hope to farmers to all the rates. It, it ensures hope when the farmers don't harvest. That was Linda Odiambo talking to two beneficiaries from the Insured Programme. Up next, we move up to the UK to chat with one of Brian's old friends. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce, and with me is Brian Thompson. Many moons ago, in my previous life as a journalist, I had the pleasure of working with the BBC's parliamentary correspondent, Max Cotton. Since then, he has moved on to live in the rural southwest of England, near Glastonbury. He has a near two-hectare small holding, with around half of it turned over to vineyards, from which he produces a rosé wine. However, for the past two years, Max has been revving up for a new project where he'll live totally self-sufficiently off the land that he has. He'll basically become a smallholder subsistence farmer in modern-day Britain. We'll be following Max through his 12 months of self-sufficiency. The project kicked off back in September. I caught up with him just before, and I asked him what exactly will be changing. I've got of uh, of fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, but this is the time of the year, the autumn harvest, where uh, lots and lots of fruit and vegetables um, are are available, and they need to be stored and preserved and um, and dried uh, to to use over over the winter. Um, and uh, that's going to be the main focus of my activity. And also trying to ca- catch up on other jobs. I've got an outside kitchen. Um, which I'm constructing in an old stable so I can keep my uh, very messy uh, catering activities to myself and not annoy my annoy my family. Um, but mainly it's going to be um, it's going to be doing that. My cow, Brenda, um, is wonderful and she's going to carve on the 15th of September or there or thereabouts. So we'll be back into milking Brenda and, uh, and other things. That's great. So, so tell me, I imagine you're having to change things around a bit in, in the way that you farm. How are you doing that? Sure. So um, what I've done is it's taken me about two years uh, uh, loosely and one year specifically to set up this project. And I've had to create spaces around right around the outside of the vineyard where I can grow cereals. I've had to uh, create a big vegetable patch, vegetable growing patch, which is on a rough old piece of ground which um, had a sow and her farrow on uh, for the last year or so. That's all been turned into a um, into a big vegetable patch. Um, but uh, I've also uh, had to sort of make sure my pasture is up to scratch and I've got a decent amount of grazing and things. So, yeah, um, uh, it's been it's been a change. Why, as, as someone living in a developed country, are, are you doing this? I think shame. Um, I think that it's tragic that in Britain, the idea of a person uh, feeding themselves off a small farm, off a small patch of land, off a small holding, um, is extraordinary. I think that's tragic. Um, It's completely normal for countless millions of people all over the world to, to farm to produce their own food. And uh, it's this extraordinary thing that makes you 
slightly weird and wacky in Britain to be doing that. I think it's a tragedy and a shame that Britain can't feed itself, um, that Britain doesn't feed itself, and that something which is just seen as normal for an ordinary subsistence farmer in one of probably a hundred countries around the world is seen as such a weird thing here. Um, and I want to do it, to be like ordinary people all over the world, producing my own food. Um, in Britain, we have people who produce food for us. We don't bother with that. We buy our food in from foreign countries. Um, and I think that's dehumanizing. I think we ought to be able to be feeding ourselves and looking after ourselves. What, I mean, we'll come back to this question as, as, as we catch up with you through the year, but right now, what is it that you are expecting? What are you hoping to get out of this? Well, it's twofold, really. I, I mean, what I'm going to get out of this primarily is, is, is the experience of the voyage. I'm going to cast off my lines. I'm going to push my little boat out into the ocean, and I'm going to complete this year-long voyage um, and uh, I'm going to only eat what I what I can produce on my small farm and, and, and eat nothing else for an entire year. And when I've done that, then I'll dock my little boat and step off with slightly wobbly legs on you know out into the real world again. So I'm going to have that experience, which I'm looking forward to with some trepidation. But I also want to highlight uh, the terrible position that we're in in Britain, a very, very rich, highly developed country as far as our food security and our food sustainability is concerned. And also to try and show other people around the world, but particularly in America and in Europe, that a country that can't feed itself is the poorer for it. As, as you head into this, this first quarter, Max, um, what would you say is your, your biggest cause for concern? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I've got plenty. <laughs> I've got plenty of causes for concern. I mean, I don't grow very good vegetables. One, because I'm slightly incompetent. And two, because I've got very, very heavy, cold, dark, sticky land. And it doesn't grow. You can't even walk on it for four or five months there, let alone grow vegetables on it. And so I've concentrated on trying to have staples for my calorie intake, which is going to be, which is going to be mainly potatoes and wheat. And my potatoes have all been blighted by potato blight. And my wheat has all been rolled on by badgers. Uh, so it's all flattened. And I'm going to have about a third of the wheat that I was expecting to have. And so those two things are a cause for concern. Because I am going to run out of potatoes by about Christmas. And I'm not going to have enough wheat to make my own bread over, over the year. So what, what was a well-organized, you know, really well-thought-out plan has gone to pot because um, because these things happen in farming. You know, I mean, this is what happens. This is why food is why we live. Because when things go wrong, we have to adapt. It's what makes us human. That was Max Cotton. Now Max will be totally self-sufficient, except for salt and tap water. We'll be catching up with Max at the end of the year. But if you want to check out how he's doing, you can follow his YouTube channel, Max Wells, with an apostrophe S rant. And that brings us to the end of podcast 38. Many thanks to our fantastic producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. 
also to our contributors that include Linda Odiambo in Nairobi, Sierra Beradelli in Rome, Ian Smith in New York, Casa Alom in Bangladesh, and Sam Cole from Sri Lanka, and everyone else who's worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Next month in Podcast 39, we'll be learning more about EFAD's new president, Alvaro Lario. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of December with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Alison Latchie, and the team here at EFAD, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.